Several years ago, a prominent academic named David Burnett uh, wrote a fascinating book called Clash of Worlds. And in the book, uh, he says this. He says, while the speed of the media makes us think the world is shrinking, the differences that define us are as great as ever. Our life and the culture that we are a part of uh, are governed by deeply held beliefs and values. And those beliefs and values comprise what is called a world view. And then Burnett goes on to uh, describe the major world views in the world and how they shape us, how our worldview, uh, whether we are fully aware of it or not, shapes us, shapes our values and our decisions, and how they're often the basis for conflict between cultures. Now, a number of people, of course, over many centuries, uh, have shaped the alternate, alternative worldviews in the world. Here in the East, of course, Confucius and Buddha. They've had a very profound effect on the way people view uh, reality. Plato, Aristotle, Augustine deeply shaped the beliefs and values of Western civilization in early centuries, earlier centuries. Of course, the worldview of a people in popular culture uh, has been influenced by a broad range uh, of people. But one of the most unlikely surprising candidates uh, to ever influence the thinking of millions over many centuries uh, wrote a part of the New Testament that we know of as the Gospel of John. The person that we know as the Apostle John was the younger of two brothers, and he grew up in the northern Israeli province of Galilee. He was a very young man when he met, uh, first met Jesus of Nazareth. And over the next three years, he became uh, who, a person who was almost certainly Jesus' closest friend. During those 36 months, uh, John had a number of dramatic, astonishing experiences uh, that literally changed his life. He was then devastated uh, by the death of Jesus, which he witnessed, only to be astonished once again uh, when he encountered a resurrected Jesus three days later. His personal drama continued as he became one of the young uh, leaders of a growing religious movement that began sweeping across the Mediterranean world. And then 50 years later, uh, when he was an old man, and uh, not long before his death, he felt compelled to write a description of the person that he had encountered that had started it all. And for those given the, the grace to understand and believe what he says, uh, his inf in information is an intellectual and personal game changer.
Uh, so I want to direct our thinking for a moment to a few of his introductory statements uh, that he makes in his, tre- his description of the life and teaching of Jesus. I want to focus just for a few minutes on some verses in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And so if you have a Bible, please, for a moment, you may be reading off a different translation. If you don't mind, let's just focus on this particular translation on the overhead for a moment. But John begins in John uh, chapter 1 with these words. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The Word became human and lived here on earth among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He was full of grace and truth. And we read, he also says, he says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But those who receive Him are given the right to become children of God. Those who believe in his name. I'd like to briefly point out three discoveries that we can make in this remarkable set of statements here. John begins by simply saying, in the beginning was the word. So in describing Jesus, John uses an expression that is found nowhere else in the Bible. Why use such an unusual expression to describe this person that he encountered and that he is trying to invite his audience to understand? Well, words, of course, are the primary means that you and I use to express ourselves, to communicate our minds, our thoughts, and our feelings to other people. So John begins by saying that this extraordinary person that he is about to describe is God's primary means of communicating information about himself, of revealing the information about who he is and what he cares about. He goes on and says the word was with God. And the Word was God. This person is no ordinary man. John is saying this person is divine in a sense that no other human has ever been or will ever be. And he continues in John chapter 1, verse 3. He says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Remarkable, amazing statement 
about this individual that he has encountered. Paul encountered, uh, the Apostle Paul encountered this same individual in a similarly dramatic way, and but under very different uh, circumstances. And he wrote to the believers in the city of Colossae this statement about Jesus. Uh, Paul says, all things were created by him. The preposition is a little ambiguous in the Greek text. It could be in him or through him. But he says all things were created by him both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. And then a remarkable statement, in him all things hold together. And the author of the book of, of Hebrews um, makes a similar statement when he says uh, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, what does that mean uh, specifically? Bear with me. Try to uh, think through this with me for a moment. The earth is about 25,000 miles in circumference or around at the equator. Since the earth uh, completes a a full rotation around its axis every 24 hours, we know that the earth is orbiting uh, its axis, uh, on its axis, at about 1,000 miles per hour. So even though there's the illusion that you and I are uh, living in a very stable environment, in fact, we are from our perception, Dramatic things are happening behind the scenes. We are moving through space at very high speed around the Earth's axis. Since the Earth is poised 93 million miles from the sun, and we know that it takes a year for the Earth to revolve completely once around the sun, we can deduce that the Earth while it's rotating on its axis, is also orbiting the sun at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. Our solar system is in the Milky Way galaxy. And astrophysicists have established that our sun and solar system are about halfway out from the galactic center Using the same math uh, that we use to calculate the speed of the rotation of the earth and the movement of the earth around the sun, uh, we can deduce that the entire solar system is revolving around the center of the galaxy at a speed of 136 miles per second. Now, this is widely acknowledged and recognized in the scientific community, the people that... uh, study and analyze and in uh, cosmology and astrophysics. But in addition to the geophysics of all of this, we know that our ecosystem is perfectly calibrated uh, to permit life on Earth. If just any one of a number of variables is slightly altered, life on Earth would be impossible. 
And so if you're accustomed to reading any material on this uh, or watching the programs that discuss this, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's almost impossible for me sometimes when I see some of the non-believing people on uh, some of the programs that are produced on this. Um, they don't uh, seem to want to go to the what to me seems the inevitable <laughs> conclusion that this, it's impossible for all of this to be the result of purely uh, chance. But since we live on a, a knife's edge of tolerances, which if slightly imbalanced would exterminate life on earth, how could all this possibly happen? Matter and energy, and I'll conclude this portion with this, are governed by four fundamental laws of physics. Gravity, electromagnetism, the strong and the weak nuclear force. The scientific community did not invent these laws that govern the regularity of the universe. They simply discovered them. But the Apostle John and Paul and the other inspired writers of Scripture plainly teaches that the one that they have encountered and that they are describing is the origin of these regularities, and he alone sustains them. Think of it this way. If you and I uh, have a satellite TV, uh, we know that if there's any interruption or disruption in the signal from the satellite, uh, we will not experience any TV. There will be no image. The teaching of the inspired scripture is that if God at any moment chooses to discontinue his ongoing maintenance of these laws, you and I ceased to exist. You, like me, uh, have seen people around us or in the movies that sometimes just frivolously or maybe even jokingly say, Jesus Christ, I saw it last night on the television. In light of the facts, we, I think you'd agree with me, that is breathtaking folly. We, in the pages of Scripture, are encountering A person who is more, far more than a person. A person that we can't even begin to understand. We can only get a glimpse of his greatness and his majesty. But the second discovery we make in these verses is that the word, as John says, is the creator and sustainer of everything. Visible and invisible. And you and I are, whether we fully understand it or recognize it, are completely and fully dependent upon him every moment for our ongoing existence. But then John goes on. He says in verse 14, he says, the word became human and lived here on earth among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. John is probably here referring to one of his experiences with Jesus. 
On one occasion, uh, he was invited with two of the other disciples up on a mountain in northern Israel to pray uh, with Jesus. And the, the text says that Jesus, while after they journeyed up there and uh, they were engaged in prayer, that Jesus was transformed uh, before them. The text says that his face shone like the sun, and his clothing became white as light. Now that would be a game changer if you are encountering someone whose identity uh, is suddenly beyond your remotest imaginations, and you've never even heard or seen anything, heard of or seen anything like it in your life. He's a young, impressionable man. You know, this, this is, this is incredible. So he says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. And, but then the great news, he goes on, he says, he was full of grace and truth. The spectacular news of the New Testament is that though we are here talking about the origin and the sustainer of all creation, if we look a little deeper, his character qualities are fundamentally those of grace. That is his desire to embrace those whom he loves and to demonstrate that in very powerful and significant ways. And he's also full of truth. Of course, we know that ignorance and deceit lead to bondage. Truth liberates. And we look in the records of the life and teaching of Jesus. He was not an individual who avoided conflict. He didn't go looking for trouble. But he was absolutely willing to speak truth uh, into circumstances and into individuals' lives and let the chips fall regardless of the consequences when the truth was at stake. He, you, if you read uh, sometimes, I, I'm amazed at some of the statements that Jesus makes in some contexts, as I'm sure you are at times. But the author of Hebrews supplements John's words uh, In verses 1 and 2, when it's talking about the the nature of the word, he says, God in these last or recent days has spoken to us in his son, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The third discovery that we make in these few short introductory verses in the Gospel of John is that the Word is the only begotten, he says, the exact representation of God's character. Of course, the word beget or begotten uh, are rarely used in modern uh, English. Uh, There's a very important difference between the meaning of the two, uh, of the, the words create and beget. To create is to make. Uh, you and I can create music or literature or buildings or machines. Um, we can create organizations. Uh, but reproducing ourselves is a function of begetting. So
So we beget another person through parenthood, and the result is a being of the same essence as we are. So after struggling, I'm sure John did, to understand the nature of Jesus as divine and not merely as human, which he had all this evidence to lead him in this conclusion. He uses the term, he's the only begotten. Now, of course, um, this was confusing uh, to the early church because the Old Testament, you know, was a very monotheistic faith. There is one God, you know, that was a repeated idea, a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament scripture. Um, and so as we read the teaching about Jesus, then there's this whole new, obviously God has launched a new era uh, through the life and teaching of Jesus. And as the movement began growing, the leaders who were grappling with the facts tried to make sense of uh, what all of this meant. And it wasn't an easy process. This is some very, very deep and complicated uh, ideas here. But Christian theology, over a period of time, evolved the orthodox formulation that God is one essence and three persons. That the, if we look at all the scripture and then we synthesize and put together all of the verses about the teaching of God the Father and of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, we inevitably conclude that his character is so rich that he is actually a relationship. And the words that God has chosen to help us understand uh, that, uh, of course, he condescends. It's, he uses anthropomorphic language because uh, he has to communicate with us with concepts and a framework that we can grasp. And so in the inspiration of Scripture, the words that God has chosen to help us understand himself are to and to describe the relationship that is God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that one of those persons who came among us in the person of Jesus is, is the only begotten, and another now lives in us in the person of the Spirit in this new age that we live in. Now, real briefly, I'd like to read, after the church struggled through to understand this, about 325 A.D., uh, the leaders of the church in the Mediterranean world came together and they formalized the teaching about Jesus and the nature of God in a Nicene Creed. And let me just read uh, what the Creed says. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man who for us was also crucified under Pontius Pilate, 
suffered and was buried. The third day he rose, according to the scriptures, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who spoke by the prophets, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Now, this is a creed that is accepted by all major branches of the Christian faith in the world today, Catholic, Protestant, or Eastern Orthodox. This is a creed that defines and formulates our understanding of what the Scripture teaches about the person and the nature of God. And John finishes up, and I'll read verse 11 and 12 of his first chapter. He says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But those who receive him are given the right to become children of God, those who believe in his name. Now, in his introduction here to the life and teaching of Jesus, only once in 18 verses does John use the words Jesus Christ. And why is that? Well, it seems that he's trying to say that, yes, Jesus was human, but much, much more. Uh, than simply human, and he searches for words to describe his greatness and his magnificence. And, of course, his teaching has shaped the Christian faith and the life of millions of people over many centuries. According to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life uh, and other people that research the statistics of global Christianity, In 2010, there were about 2.1 billion uh, Christians in the world, which is nearly a third of the global population. Now, of course, uh, these people uh, certainly wouldn't be uh, identified as Christians or as Christ followers in the way that the Scripture fully defines those terms, but that's a very, fairly substantial uh, influence and John's teaching in this magnificent description of the life and teaching of Jesus uh, has had a great influence and it deserves our closest attention. So in closing, um, we've been doing a series on uh, church. Why bother? Two reasons, in addition to those that we have explored together so far. First, We bother, we join together in communities as God's people, and we collaborate because we have been given responsibility for disseminating some very, very important information. And we can do that much more effectively, united than we can uh, isolated. Jesus himself said in John chapter 3, or is recorded in John chapter 3, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, 
but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, Paul says, how shall they believe in whom they've never heard? And so we know that a vital, critically important function of us as a community is to do the best possible job that we can to represent the teaching well and to get this remarkable information out. And then secondly, we collaborate because together we have a better opportunity to encounter Christ. Beautiful uh, passages in the Gospel of John when Jesus, his last conversation uh, on earth before his death and resurrection, he talks about how it is better that he go away because if he goes away, he will send to us another comforter who will guide us into the truth. And because that's true, because the comforter, he says, has been given to us and is a part of us as we gather together in healthy, strong, functioning communities of believers, we have an opportunity to encounter him on a routine uh, basis, to learn more about him, to experience him, and to systematically serve him. Over 200 years ago, uh, young Scott, who was a professor at the University of Aberdeen, whose name uh, was Henry Skugel, began corresponding with a friend of his. And uh, Skugel actually died when he was only 27 years old. Never published anything. Uh, would appear to have left this earth without having much of an influence. Uh, but after he died, his letters had been so powerful and influential in the life of his friend that his friend uh, put them together and published it. And those collected letters are still in print 200 years uh, later and are called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And in one of those letters, uh, Skugel says this. He says, you and I may more clearly discover the condition of our hearts by looking closely at what we are passionate about. If we are passionate about the base or sordid, we ourselves become sordid. If our affections are fixed on what is truly beautiful... Our spirit is transformed and begins resembling the object of our affection. We never experience the transforming presence of God until we grow weary of ourselves, turn away from lesser passions, and give ourselves over to the author of our being. And that is our role, is our, our calling as Christ followers, as in a congregation, is to give ourselves over to this magnificent author 
of our being. Let's pray.